What's up, Revolution? I'm not going to make you do it again. That was good. I, I appreciated that. Thank you very much. Um, well, I, I got my shorts back. Yeah, glory to God, right? Thank you very much. <laughs> He's got legs. Wasn't that a song? He's got legs. We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> all right, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David Dowdy, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution. And uh, I'm a pretty simple guy to know. I'm pretty much an open book. There's nothing about me that I won't tell you. Within reason, right? There's some things you can't say into a microphone in a church. You'll get kicked out. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> but here's me in a nutshell. Right? I love Jesus. I love to study scripture. I love to study theology. Um, I'm a facial hair enthusiast, if you couldn't notice. Uh, love beards. Uh, I will, without a doubt, in Walmart, walk up to a man that I do not know and shake his hand and tell him, thanks for keeping the faith, brother. Like, just let it grow as much as you can. Um, I love to play the drums. And somehow, even though I look like, a, like some kind of a carpenter, lumberjack, serial killer, I have convinced a beautiful woman to marry me. All right, so that's me in a nutshell, essentially. All right, and these are all really good things. I like them. Um, but have you ever, like with your hobbies or with whatever that you like to do in your free time, um, you ever feel like you are the best? No? No one? I'm the only one who has an arrogant streak in me, I guess. Right? You feel prideful. Like, I am the smartest. I am the best drummer. I am the best whatever it is that you are. And then something happens and you get put in your place. It's beautiful. Right? This has happened to me a bunch. But then you eventually look back and you see that you're glad that you were humbled. You're glad that your pride got beat down because you're better for it. Right? Like I used to think that I was the best drummer ever. And because I was God's gift to the music community, I decided to lend my talents to the Minford High School Marching Band. Right? And I get there, and, uh, and there's these guys, and they know way more about music than me. And they're just ripping off some crazy stuff on a snare drum. And I'm, they're like, so what do you think about that? And I'm like, that's not so bad, man. You know, whatever. And they handed me a pair of sticks in front of the whole drum line and said, play it back then, bud. I can't read music, for those of you who don't know this. Um, I can, I can kind of read regular books, but I cannot read music. Um, so I just got completely owned in front of an entire drum section, right? Or I love theology. Um, for a long time, I thought I was the smartest dude coming or going and the most well-educated, which is hilarious because uh, I'm a college dropout. But I had this mentality anyway that I was the smartest dude around. And then I started studying theology under this dude named Dave Dunham, who used to, who used to preach here at Revolution. And Dave um, can read Greek. He has a seminary degree. He's He's been published by some, like, scholarly, like, journals within Christianity and stuff like that. And I studied under him. And I remember going in thinking, you know, I'm pretty smart. Uh, hey, Dave, can you teach me how the Old Testament points to Jesus in the New Testament? And he's like, sure. And I was like, hey, you know, what, what's someone like you studying? He goes, oh, I'm just studying, you know, what kind of modes of baptism are, are acceptable? Do we sprinkle or do we, like, submerge people or should we baptize children? And I was like, that's what, like, that's where you're at? Like, that is so far down on the list of, like, things that I know or, like, was even interested in at the time, right? And I just really got put in my place that I'm not the smartest dude. Uh, I said that I'm a facial hair enthusiast. I have a good beard. Amen? <laughs> Tell me I'm good. Tell me it's good, right? <laughs> right? And I, I thought, you know, I have the best beard at Revolution, and I did for a really long time. Like, no offense, guys. Like, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, God's gifted me genetically. And then this dude comes in named Bud Boggs. Bud plays bass for us sometimes. He has a beard down to here and a ponytail down to there. And, like, he makes me look like Kira Knightley, right? This dude is, like, so masculine and good that I look like a chick. So I found out I'm not as good as I thought I was. You know, and I used to 
uh, arrogantly, seemingly arrogantly, uh, be under the belief that I was the most handsome, most athletic, um, smartest, most romantic man in my entire family. And then my sister married Brandon Pate, and I realized I didn't just think it, but it was actually true. Um, told you I'd get you, Pate. Um, all right, but, but here's the thing. Why did I feel like I was the greatest? Why did I feel like I was the best? Pride, period. Pride is why that I felt like I was the greatest. Pride is the thing that makes us think that we are the most important thing coming or going, that we are just it. We're the man, right? It's where we get that what's in it for me, uh, what about me kind of mentality that's really prevalent uh, in Western culture. And I'll make this statement. Um, I, I think that, this is me, and, I, and I'll let you know if it's ever proved to be false, but it's held up so far in my, in my four years of being a Christian. Um, all sin is rooted in human pride. All sin goes back to pride on some level, right? It's all rooted in self-adoration and arrogance, right? God commands us to live one way. God tells us to do something, and we arrogantly and selfishly give him the finger and say, I'm going to do things my way because I know what's best because I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm the one who's in control of my life. It's complete self-absorbed pride. Right? All of our sins, selfishness, uh, lack of faith, not trusting uh, God, whatever it may be, it all comes down to us thinking that we know best. I can't trust God to give me this. I must go out and get it myself. I can't trust God to do his will. I can't trust that God's commands are good because there's some things that I just must do. I can't not do some of these things. I can't not have some of these things. Right? People, people base their entire lives around pride. Right, you ever heard the myth of the self-made man? Pulled myself up by my bootstraps and it was all me. I just worked really hard. Right? Pride. I don't want to admit that God's the one who lined up these opportunities for me. That God's the one who gave me the ability to do the work that I do. That God set me up with a job to be able to make the money for me to get the house and have the life that I have. The self-made man thing is a myth. It's all rooted in pride. Right? It's the American dream. It's all about us, baby. Right? It's what it is. And there are even whole theologies based around pride. Right? Where it's all about you, like the prosperity gospel and stuff like that. It's all about you and what you will and what you want and what you can do. Right? It's this, this kind of theological thinking that attempts to rob God of his rule and rob God of his sovereignty because it's all about you and you're the one in control of your destiny. Right? So we have this problem of pride. But here's the thing. Scripture says repeatedly that God opposes the proud. Over and over again, right? It's in Proverbs, it's in James, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke. Jesus says it a few times. It is everywhere, right? That God opposes the proud, but he'll raise up the humble. So this puts us in a really, really bad spot. Follow me here. We all sin. Therefore, we all have pride. We think we know better than God. This is going to be something that we all need to pay attention to because we all have wicked pride. You know, maybe we think that we're better than the person sitting next to us. We're better than the drug addict down the street. Or we think that we're wiser than God. And there's no reason that he should have told us not to do these things and to actually go and actively do other things. We don't see why um, that he would say that. We think we're wiser. We think that we're the ones that's in control, right? We have sin, but we don't want to let it go. You know, whatever it is, it's all pride-based because we're focused focused on ourselves. And again, it's evident because we sin. So what are we going to do? It sounds to me, not to sound like a hick, but we need a lesson in humility, right? 
No one else is from Minford, except, I guess, or whatever. I hear rednecks saying, you need a lesson in, you know, whatever. You've gotten too big for your britches. It's one of my favorites. Um, and, and, you know, as luck would have it, Jesus is going to give us this lesson in humility that we need really badly. All right, so tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. It's going to be on the projector behind me. Um, and also, just so you guys know, there's Bibles out there for you to take home. It's the transition, or transition, translation you have is really hard to understand. That's our gift to you. Take it home and read it. You're not stealing. We want you to have it. All right, but what I want us to do is I want us to check out what Jesus has to say in this passage, right, and really take heed to his words, Right, to take, take his words to the heart and genuinely be transformed in our thinking and be transformed in our hearts. And we're going to talk about our hearts here in a little while to where we'll actually do what he wants from us. All right, but Luke chapter 9, verse 43, let's check it out. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, I know this seems like a very strange place for us to pick up, all right? But what I want you guys to know, if any of you have been reading Luke along with us, we've been in chapter 9 for a few weeks now, all right? And, and what there is, is there's this constant theme. It's this up and down that we see of Jesus serving and then Jesus being glorified and Jesus serving and being glorified. Er, earlier in the chapter, we see that Jesus performs the miracle of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. It was a huge number of people with the loaves and bread. A lot of us have heard that story, right? So he, he serves people by giving them food because they're hungry. And then right after that, he is declared the Messiah. So he receives glory in that way that, that Jesus then, after receiving uh, the, the, the title of Messiah, not that he received it from them, but being proclaimed Messiah, he then goes and he explains his mission to die and serve humanity by dying. And then he's transfigured, right? The transfiguration where Jesus is shown in all of his glory, where his face shines brighter than the sun and his clothes are, gr- are glowing. And Elijah and Moses are there and God the Father speaks, right? He receives glory there. And then we see right after that, Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. And then that's where we pick up into this. That while everyone's marveling at all the things that Jesus does, he says, Remember what, I ha- remember what I'm saying, I have to die, right? I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of my enemy. So there's this theme, up and down, service and glory, right? Jesus is constantly serving other people, right? He's constantly thinking of others and not himself. Remember, we're talking about pride, and we're talking about killing pride in our lives, right? He's constantly saying, there's always more for me to do. He doesn't revel in the praise of other people. He's saying, I must push on because there is more for me to do here. And here's the kicker to all this, the fact that Jesus doesn't revel in the praise of men, but wants to be obedient to his father. He actually deserves all praise and honor and all glory forever. And yet he doesn't revel in it. He says, I'm doing this for for what my father tells me to do, and I must push on in my service, right? So while people are marveling at him, probably calling him great, He decides to talk about, like I said, how much more he's going to have to serve. And he talks about his death. He's talking about the good news that he is going to be handed over as a guilty man and killed as if he was a murderer or something. And he was completely innocent. Jesus had never sinned. He was the only one who never deserved death. But he says, I am going to go and take your guilt on myself and die in your place to serve you. Because I love you. That's what all of this comes down to, why Jesus says this. I have to serve more. What, what I'm getting at is Jesus is all about service. You know, and the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is, is this how we are? 
right? Or do we serve and then we revel in the praise of men and we're becoming content in it because it serves our pride? Is that what we do? You know, or, or are we mission-minded? Are we servant-minded? There's more to do and we must push on. And I don't know the answer to that. You know, this is something you have to ask yourself. You know, is that you? Are you doing that? But all in all, Jesus is expressing his humility and he's reminding us that there is more service to be rendered. But we'll move on. Verse 46. Then his Jesus, then Jesus' disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. I don't know if you guys catch the irony in this. Are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) Right? Jesus is just talking about, I don't care about the glory and praise of men. I'm here to serve and do what my father says. And then the disciples arrogantly start arguing over greatness. Right? It it doesn't make sense. Like, who's better? Who's done more? Who deserves more glory? Right? And this is all conjecture, what I'm getting ready to say. But I can kind of imagine what their arguments would have been like. Like Jesus had just sent them out earlier, I think it's in chapter 9 or towards the end of chapter 8. He sends them out two by two. And and he says, you know, uh, I'm giving you the authority uh, to cast out demons. I'm giving you the authority to heal the sick and raise the dead. And I want you to tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? So I can see them arguing now saying, "Uh, so, uh, Peter, what did you do whenever you were out? Uh, Well, you know, I healed three deaf people. Deaf people? I healed three blind people. Right? Uh, we're going we're gonna to keep stepping it up. And then someone says, oh, yeah, well, I uh, cast demons out of four guys. Oh, yeah, you did that? Well, I, I raised someone from the dead. I'm pretty sure that I top all of you on that. And then I can see James, Peter, and John saying, well, we saw Jesus glorified. Right? We heard God the Father speak to us. So, you know, we're on the top level of all of this. Right? And they do this all with Jesus Christ as their leader. Like the great one. And they argue about who is the greatest, right? It's kind of like that they're like the idiot in school. It's like, you know, Jesus, you're pretty cool and all, but we're pretty awesome too, right? Like, give us some credit here, man. It doesn't seem to make any sense, right? This is nothing but an outpouring of pride. That's the problem. This is nothing but wicked human pride. You know, I'll say this too before we get like too like prideful. And say, you know, the disciples are pretty stupid, right? I think that we need to look at this. The disciples are more often than not a really good window for us to look through and see ourselves. We're we're no different the vast majority of the time. We do the exact same crap. We compare ourselves to one another. Right? And we come away incredibly arrogant, right? I've done more. You know, I read scripture like eight hours a week. What do you do? I've served more. I, I like stopped for four homeless people this week. What are you doing for the kingdom? What have you done? I deserve God's love more than you. I deserve his mercy and grace more than you. We compare ourselves to each other. We look and say, I'm a better Christian than the guy next to me. Pure arrogance, pure pride. And I'm right there with you. Right? Like I talked about, I love theology. I love gaining head knowledge, right? I love to read books. I've been, I've actually, I'm on my sixth book this year. My goal is to read 30, nerding out for the glory of God. Um, but that, that's what I do. I tend to, I, I, little secret about me, I want to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> it's not working out very well. But like, I, I, that's my goal. Like, I want to I go in somewhere and know that I'm the smartest guy around. I have a lot of pride whenever it comes to, to what I know, and, and, and I'm really slow to tell you what I don't know. You know, um, with serving people, right? I'm really quick to want to give people uh, money, and I'm really quick to want to stop um, my car for homeless people, and I, and I want to disciple people, and I want to lead Bible studies, and I want to preach to you guys. But then sometimes I let this build up like this wall of pride where I can say, look at all the things that I've done for Jesus. What have you done? And I don't say that in these moments of pride and arrogance to, to try to push you on. 
to say, hey, man, let's do something together for the glory of God. You need to glorify God yourself. Do something. I say this as like a point of arrogance, again, that I'm better. So at the core, what I'm doing and what you guys are doing, because we all do this, we all compare ourselves, we're comparing the accomplishments of one sinner to another. How stupid is that? Like one person who is completely deserving of damnation to another, but yet we want to call ourselves better than someone else. And I think that that is essentially what the disciples are doing here. They're arguing over who is the greatest, who's going to get to sit next to Jesus in the new kingdom. You know, and like I said before, pride is the root of all sin. I'm good. I deserve it, right? It's the same mentality that says I can save myself. We build up this wall of pride and accomplishments and say, well, why wouldn't Jesus love me? You know, this is an I know more, I'm better than you. I'm what matters. and, And hear me on this. This is the problem with pride. Pride focuses on self glory rather than God's glory. That's the problem. It's look at me and look at what I've done instead of, don't look at me, look at the one who I'm doing this for, like we're told to, told to do good deeds for, right? And the Bible says that whatever is not done to God's glory is, is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So guys, I want you to listen. Everything in creation, everything, everything that's ever happened, God creating earth, God creating the universe, God creating you, the cross, your salvation, God sending Jesus Christ to be a perfectly obedient servant and die in your place and be raised from the dead, you becoming a Christian, everything is done to God's glory. Everything. If we benefit at all from it, that's a secondary thing. Everything is done for God's glory. So hear this. Why would we think that we deserve any glory if God's chief end is to glorify himself? Why would we want to have any pride if that's God's chief end? And that's why pride is sin. But here's the cool thing. What does Jesus do in response to this stupid, petty, arrogant fight? What does he do? Let's see, verse 47. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he brought a little child to his side. I don't know if you caught that or not. I'm not talking about the child. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He could see inside them and see what's going on. He could see their wicked pride. He could see their self-absorption. He could see their arrogance. And what I want you guys to know is that sin is primarily a heart issue. You know, it's not merely an action, right? It's not just the act of murder. It's the hate that starts in your heart to make you want to kill somebody. Action springs from the heart. Whatever is in here is going to come out in what you do, right? And that goes vice versa. So whenever we obey God, it's not because we're good. It's because God has changed our hearts to desire to do what pleases him, right? I want you guys to be real clear on this. We do nothing good as God defines good, which is to his glory. We do none of that in and of ourselves. All good that we do comes from a heart that has been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. That is the only way for us to do any good at all. Everything is an issue of the heart. So here's what's cool. Instead of going to the disciples with a command to just stop arguing and telling them to be better, to be more mature Christians, to shape up and do everything right, Jesus decides to go after their hearts. And he does it with an example and he does it with a message. And I really think, and this is something that that ticks me off, and me and Ryan talk about this a lot, um, the church misses this. 
Like, I, I feel like revolution may miss this sometimes. We think that following Jesus is about behavior modification. You know, st- like, stop getting drunk, stop sleeping with your girlfriend, um, you know, stop smoking weeds, stop cussing people out when you get mad, right? Stop all these external behaviors, but no one goes after your heart. It's all external change that people can do apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all external stuff that's not that hard to stop doing. But with Christianity, it's really all about a heart transplant. It's about receiving a new nature. So what Jesus is going to do is he is going to teach them about humility. So what he does is he brings a child to his side. And I'm a nerd. I love history. I say this every time. We're going to do a little bit of cultural context. This is pretty cool, right? Children were considered worthless in this culture. Kind of like they are now with all like the pro-choice crap going on, right? Children were considered intrinsically worthless, right? And, and think about it. Children offer nothing to society at all, right? They just take and take and take, and they can give nothing back. They're not educated. They don't work. They can literally offer adults nothing, right? And, like, let's be real for a minute. I have a year-and-a-half-old niece. Her name's Natalie. She's cuter than your family. I don't care what anyone says. And, uh, and I looked at her yesterday, right? She was at my mom's house, and I, and I sat down. And I said, hey, Natalie, let's do the dishes. And she just stared at me and drooled and crapped her pants. And uh, she's just like her dad. And, um, and it <laughs> right? She can't help me. She can do nothing. Like, there's nothing that, that I can actually, like, she can actually do to make my life better. There's, there are words that I love to hear her say, um, you know, my name and stuff like that. But my life doesn't change a whole lot because of that. The children can offer us nothing now. And back then, like I said, they were considered way more worthless than we tend to consider them. Um, but in, in Matthew 18, this is kind of cool, we see this exact same scene play out. Right, this scene with the child and this scene with the, the argument, right? And, and we see that Jesus says in order to follow him, we must become like children. Right, now, he's not telling us to behave like children because enough of us do that already. God help us all. Right, but what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to be humble. That's what he's doing. He's giving us a call to humility because we must be humbled in order to follow Jesus. And what I mean by that is we have to realize our own sin. Nothing is going to humble you. You are not going to want Jesus. You are not going to want salvation. You're going to want nothing to do with holiness until you realize your own sin. Until you realize that you have spit in the face of a holy God that is the embodiment of love and the embodiment of justice. And you have said, I will be my own God. I don't care what you have to offer me. I don't care what what kind of life you have for me. I want to do things my way. Until you realize that that is what you have done for your entire life. You will never be humbled. But here's the thing, whenever you realize that you're a sinner, that you have done all of those things against a God of infinite love that deserved no wrong to be done to him, whenever you realize that, you'll realize something else. You're worthless. You might say that's harsh, but you will realize whenever you're a sinner that you are worthless. You have nothing to offer God. You have no righteousness to offer him. He already owns everything in the universe. What are you going to give him? All you've given him is grief. All you've given him is rebellion. What are you going to do? You have nothing. But it's whenever we realize that, whenever we realize our intrinsic worthlessness, because we have done nothing but rebel, then we can come to God like children. Children come to their parents with nothing to give. They come to their parents with their hands open saying, I have nothing to better your life, but please have mercy on me. Please pity me. 
You know, we have no righteousness. We have no case to make to God for our sin. We have nothing that would make him want to stop his wrath from coming on us. So whenever we come to him acknowledging that and then pleading the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then we begin to behave like children. We begin to trust wholly in the work of someone else to save us. Just like Natalie completely trusts her parents to feed her, to change her, to take care of her, to clothe her, to provide her with shelter. That's what we must do with Jesus. We admit our dependence. We put all of our hope, all of our trust, everything that we are on the finished work of Jesus. And then we come to God for undeserved mercy through Jesus. That is how we enter the kingdom. This is how we follow Jesus. It's, it's straight up humility, where we make much of God and nothing of ourselves. That's the good news, is that you're worthless, but God decided to show you mercy anyway. Because he loves you. That's the good news. Right, but that's how we enter the kingdom. But here's the thing. This, this gospel, this good news, should shatter our pride. Right? It should kill everything because, we, once again, we realize our worthlessness. It should shatter our pride that God would be willing to be this merciful to us. Right? And in the words of John MacArthur, um, this, is, this is pretty cool, the gospel, whenever we submit and, and we realize this and we come to saving faith in Christ, it deals our pride a death blow. But pride still writhes in the throes of death and strikes out at us throughout the rest of our lives because it's not dead yet until we die. Right? We'll always wrestle with sin. We'll always wrestle with this pride, right? It's kind of like, you ever been to that party? Like, I wasn't always a Christian. You ever been to that party uh, where, like, the dude's just drunk and he's getting the crap beat out of him and he's still running his mouth? <laughs> no one? Whatever. Right? Or, like, I was watching this YouTube video and this dude, um, he was at, you ever, you ever, anyone ever been to Whataburger in Texas? It's pretty banging. That place is awesome. Right? But these two guys are thrown down in Whataburger. And in the middle of this fight, this guy just takes the pants off this other guy. <laughs> And the guy's still running his mouth, and he's standing around with no pants on in the middle of a fist fight. And in the words of Matt Chandler, if you enter into a fight with your pants on and you leave the fight with your pants off, you lost. Like, there is no, like, there is no coming back from that, right? Like, you lost that fight, right? Just like pride has lost the fight, but it's still going to talk smack. It's still going to raise its head against us. But we must hit our pride again and again and again as it raises its head up at us. That's what we have to do. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to beat pride into submission? Verse 48. Then Jesus said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. So how do we destroy the pride in our lives? This is going to seem odd. Jesus says, you want to destroy the the pride in your lives? Be great. Be truly great. Right? And this sounds so, so strange, right? And I, and I, I want you to, to understand this too. Jesus never answers the question, who is the greatest? He just ignores it. Instead of telling them which one of them is the greatest, he says, let me tell you what true greatness looks like. If you want to be great, let me show you what it looks like. And he tells us it's in humility and service to other people. That's what greatness really is. Serving other people, humbling yourself. And if you don't believe me, let's take a look at history. Right, right now we have idiots like Kanye West, right? Anyone watch the Grammy stuff with Beck? That was just funny to me. Um, apparently no one cares about music. Whatever. Um, Kanye West, all right, we look at him. We look at people like Bill O'Reilly. 
um, who is f- incredibly famous. We look at uh, people like actors like Christoph Waltz, who are really good at what they do. They're making a lot of money. They're at the top of their game. They have a lot of fame. People are serving them, doing what they want done, right? They receive all kinds of recognition. They become incredibly prideful and become like jerks, right? And we think that that's greatness. They've reached the top. That's true greatness. That's what we tend to think. But in reality, they're a flash in the pan. Right, let's look back at history and see what true greatness is, right? Who do we remember? Who does history remember? History remembers the people who have sacrificed and emptied out their lives in service to others. That's who history remembers. Right, Mother Teresa, everyone's, everyone knows who Mother Teresa is. Right? She dedicated her entire lives to serving orphans. Right, being very, very pro-life, right, for the sanctity of human life, and spent her whole life, everything that she had, she took a vow of poverty and served people until the day that she died. We look at great men like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. who said, I'll put my life on the line, I'll go to jail, I'll go to prison for the equality of other people, I'll lay my life down. We look at Christian men like John Huss and Martin Luther who said, people need scripture in their own language and I'm willing to die for it. And John Huss was burned at the stake because he was trying to translate the Bible from Latin into the language of the people that he lived around. Martin Luther said, I'll stick my neck on the line in order to confront bad doctrine and a false gospel, and I don't care if they try to kill me or not. I'm willing to serve other people and lay down whatever it takes. That's greatness. You know, Jesus says that greatness is displayed when we serve people. When we serve the least among us, right? Whenever we serve the childlike who have nothing to give, whenever we serve the uncool people around us who have nothing to add to our status, whenever we serve poor people who cannot and never will be able to pay us back, whenever we serve people who may not be just like us and cannot further our agendas and our causes, that's what true greatness is. Jesus even calls the least the greatest in order to show us that we must serve everyone. Right? Because it's natural in our, human, in our human nature to serve the ones that we deem great. Right? The ones who can help us, the ones who can further what we're about. That's in our nature to serve those people. But Jesus is saying we have to be willing to do this for everyone. Right? But do we serve? How do we serve? If you do, what do you do? And we should. Right? And we have a phenomenal example of what service looks like in Jesus Christ. And we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And we see the Apostle Paul write this, and pay attention, this is amazing. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is amazing. That Jesus, the great one, the greatest, did not count his status of equality with God the Father, anything to grasp, but that he would pour himself out in service to people that hated him. 
that he would die a criminal's death for the criminals. That's service. He, he definitely took an interest in others. He took an interest in us. And without that, we have no hope. Without that, we would be damned. That's how we're to serve other people. Thinking nothing of ourselves and making much of other people. That's true service. That's what Jesus wants us to do. People of every background, of every class, of every race, of every clique, of every whatever. That's what we're supposed to do because Jesus has decided to save people, men and women from every tribe, nation, race, language. That's what he's done. We must have the same attitude that Jesus did. You know, and we serve in any way that we can. You know, but how? Right, how are we going to do this? Right, and if you're looking for me to, like, give you some kind of, hey, we're planning on in two months doing this big thing. Like, no, that's not what we're doing at all, right? Like, get that out of your head. We don't need another city invasion. I'm not saying that that thing was inherently bad or any of that stuff, this big, huge concert that went on last summer. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not knocking it. But that's not what we need. Consider this. Be led by the Holy Spirit for once. Right, and I'm, I'm usually not one, I, I am afraid of theology surrounding the Holy Spirit because I don't know a, a ton. I'm working on it, right? But I will say this, if you feel like you should go do something that does not contradict Scripture, that is not sinful, and you see a need, and you say, man, I have the time, I have the ability, I'll make the time, rather, I have the ability to meet this need, then meet it. More often than not, that's going to be the Holy Spirit prompting you to go and do service for someone else. If you see someone struggling across the street to get something done, go over there and offer your services. If you see someone who looks like they have no friends, go and befriend that person. Be led by the Spirit and do something. Right? That's the whole reason that we do like cookouts and stuff during the spring and summer and fall is to get people used to serving like that in a big community event. So in the hopes that they will begin to be led by the Spirit and serve in every day of their life whenever they see a need. You know, so see a need and meet it. It's that simple and it's that hard. Because we don't want to do it. You know, and and this is, like I said, this isn't an event. This is at work, right? This is with friends. This is with neighbors. This is with anyone, anywhere, anytime, right? This is with your family, right? If you're married, make time for your spouse, man. Make time for your kids. Go after them. Be a father. Be Be a mother, right? If you're not married, Go after your parents. How can I serve you? What can I do? How can I pray for you? If you have a a fiancé or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, go to them. What can I do for you? How can I serve? Right? Love them. Be willing to inconvenience yourself because rest assured, it was an inconvenience for Jesus to come and die. Right? Be tired. Be willing to be tired and let your schedule be somewhat hectic once in a while. Right? Let people know that you're there for them and then actually be there for them. Serve. And again, this boils down to what Paul said. Think more of others than yourself. That's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Don't be prideful. Right? Be concerned with people and their problems. Right, but let's make this real. Let's not make this vague or, or generic or whatever. Let's make this real. Uh, something that we can put into practice. Something that we can do tonight. And we're going to. We're going to here in a few minutes. Right, let's focus on the church for a minute. Let's focus on Revolution Church right now for just a, a few minutes. At Rev, whenever we say service or whenever we think of service, here's what we tend to do. We tend to think of things going on outside of these four walls. And glory be to God the Father, that is awesome. 
right? Evangelism is awesome. Feeding people is awesome. Stopping and helping homeless people, things like that. I hope that you're all doing it. If you're doing it, don't stop. I'm not knocking it. That's huge. It's what we're supposed to do is tell people the gospel and help people out whenever we see needs, right? But sometimes we focus on outside service at the expense of the body of Christ. I'm the first one to be guilty of this. I'm not the best friend. I'm not the best pastor. I'm not the best counselor or disciple or, 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 or whatever. Right? But sometimes we try to serve people outside of here at the expense of the people in here. Right? People are hurting in this church, and we don't know it because we don't know them. Because we click up, and we're going to talk about that next week. We click up, and we don't want to mess with it. We have our little circle of friends, and we don't feel like going outside of there. We don't feel like inconveniencing ourselves, right? Young believers in this church, I know for a fact, they they need discipling, and yet they're going it alone. They're having to live this life alone because no one's willing to take time out of their schedule to make time for them and take them under their wing and say, this is how a Christian lives. This is what a Christian believes. This is how a husband treats his wife. This is how a wife serves her family. Right? There are mature believers going, going it alone and living this life of Christianity alone because they really have no family connection here. And in the words of James, brothers and sisters, it ought not be so. Right? We're family. That's destructive. That's not family. That's an organization. Sounds like a PTO meeting that we do every Sunday night for like an hour. That's what it sounds like. You know, so let's try to serve one another here, within the people that are here. Let's try to serve one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's hang out with each other. Let's help each other out. Let's study together. If you're in college, study for your regular classes together. Get in and become family, right? So that's something that I'm challenging you guys to do is go to someone that you don't know or someone that you know or whatever and invite them into your life. Invite them into your home. Invite them to hang out with you and your friends, you know, whatever it is. And remember this, they don't have to be just like you. Right? They don't have to have something uh, to offer you because it's true service whenever someone has nothing to give you and yet you would do this anyway. You know, so go. Go and do it. Right? Go to someone that you don't know yet if you're really outgoing. Tonight, go to someone that you don't know yet. Or, or if, you're, if you're a little bit uh, more introverted than that, uh, go to someone that you do know. And this is big because I think this is most of us. Go to someone that you do know but that you never see outside of revolution. That's real. There's a lot of people that I know I don't see outside of this church. Go to those people, right? Or if you're incredibly introverted, go to someone that you used to be really tight with but that you've kind of disconnected from because of busyness or whatever and reconnect with that person and establish a family bond again. And what I'm saying is we must be the church. We must be a family. The Bible calls us brothers and sisters in Jesus. We have to act like it. We have a tendency not to. Right, but, but this is a call for us to, to be people who serve each other in love and in truth. Because that's how Jesus served us. This life was never meant to be lived alone. You know, and then after we serve one another and we, we've got this family bond, let's step it up and go out and, and outside of here and serve people on a regular basis, on a daily basis, being led by the Spirit. So kill your pride. No one in here is better than anyone else. Christian or non-Christian, no one in here is better than anyone else. We're all sinners that deserve hell, but we get grace through Jesus. Kill your pride. 
inconvenience yourself, right? Pour yourself out like Jesus did for us. That is the imitation of Jesus. When we're willing to do that, when we do that, and that's our goal, right? Not just heaven, not just reward. That's all well and good. Those are beautiful things, and I look forward to those things when I die. But for right here in this life, right now, our goal is to be like our king. So serve and be great. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for serving. Thank you for sending Jesus to serve us. Thank you for willing Christ to come and, and be a servant to all. Thank you for Christ having no humility, God, so that we have an example of how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to treat one another. Father, I pray that that we heed your words and actually begin to go out and and serve one another and and be a true family, just like you tell us to. Father, I I thank you for the good news, God, and I, I thank you for what the Holy Spirit's doing in us, and I pray that we would be more obedient. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.